whenever I describe it to people, it's like, I just like my dad only had this one tool in my toolbox, which was alcohol. I reached for it for anything when I was happy, when I was sad, when I was stressed. So going to therapy helped me develop all of these new tools and all these new skills. So I was less likely to reach for that alcohol, less and less and less until finally one week it stuck. Welcome to the Thoughts from the Couch podcast. I'm anxiety treatment expert and licensed mental health counselor, Justine Carino. I'm here to help you understand the root of your anxiety so you can create new habits that actually stick. Toxic behavior patterns, dysfunctional relationships, and childhood family trauma are all linked to the anxiety you experience. And that's exactly what we dive into on this podcast. Join me as I guide you through flipping the script on your negative thoughts, setting healthy boundaries in your relationships, and cultivating a self-care practice that's as unique as you are. From my couch to yours, let's create your path to peace. Hello, my sweet listeners. Welcome to another episode of the Thoughts from the Couch podcast. Today, we are diving into patterns of addiction in families. Many of you know that I am an adult child of an alcoholic. I grew up with an alcoholic father, and I do have an episode on that if you're interested in tuning in. But in this episode, I was able to interview sober living advocate and influencer Jenna DeLulio. I have to say, I love when people become influencers for real things that matter and impact your mental health. When you first come upon Jenna on social media, you initially think, wow, this girl is beautiful and wears cute clothes and does her makeup really well, but that's not what she's there for on this platform. Her content and messaging is all about living a sober lifestyle. So that had me really curious because I knew she must have some kind of story behind this lifestyle choice. So in this episode, you get to hear Jenna talk all about her life before she became sober and the problems that alcohol caused for her, as well as how generational cycles of addiction in her family played a role in her issues with alcohol. Now Jenna is what we call a cycle breaker and has been sober for almost four years, and she's expecting a baby. So let's dive into this episode. Hi, Jenna. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your career, and what led you to create your Instagram account? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, so I am been in the Instagram realm, I guess, for about a little over four years now. And I'm from Virginia, originally from West Virginia. That's where my, I have hillbilly roots. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been to West Virginia. Oh, it's beautiful. It gets like such a bad rep, but I'm telling you, like if you like outdoorsy stuff, like hiking or like seeing just beautiful nature, like I recommend West Virginia. I love that. But yeah, I live in Virginia now with my husband. I'm expecting my first baby in August. Thank you. Yeah. And I read like, as of now I have my own business. So I run Jenna DeLulio LLC and it started with me starting my Instagram account in 2018 ish. So we, I, I really just started to open up on social media. Whenever I got sober, I couldn't find anybody out there that I could identify with. I couldn't find anybody that 
was motivating me to live a sober life. Everyone that I knew or that I was looking at on social media, they were drinking and they were drinking in excess. And I longed for that so much, especially before I got sober, I would get on and just be like, come on, like, give me someone that I can look to. And around like six months of me being sober, I was like, I'm going to talk about this, like just a little bit. And I gave this post that was super vague, but I talked about my health, like my overall well-being, And I mentioned that within the past six months, I had stopped drinking and the overwhelming, like curiosity, support, love questions I was getting. I was like, this is like, there's a gap here that like, not a lot of people are talking about this. So I just kept sharing. And now I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And I love that you took like a little risk, like a little baby step of like, let me put a little bit of this out there and see what happens. And then it exploded. And so that tells us clearly we need more people like you being sober advocates. Yes, um, Totally. And you have such good content and it's so relatable and entertaining and really normalizes a sober lifestyle for people, which I think is Thank so, you. so awesome. So <laughs> let's dive into your personal story with alcohol. You know, when did you yeah. start drinking? What was your relationship with alcohol like? And I'm curious, like, did the culture of the area you grew up in have any influence over your alcohol use? Yeah. So it, what's wild is like throughout my life, I have watched my dad struggle with alcoholism my whole life. Like, and it made me resent not only my dad, but alcohol. Like I throughout high school when everyone was partying and drinking, I never wanted to do that. I stayed away from alcohol totally until I got into college. And I remember the very first time I drank I drank a whole entire bottle of wine and I blacked out. Like, so it wasn't even that first time I like could moderate. And I definitely think the culture that I grew up in played into that, you know, and not only the culture of West Virginia, but alcoholism is generational. And in my family, it goes back so far. Like, I can't even tell you like where it starts. Like, honestly, like I like, I do ancestry.com. Oh, I was cool. looking at it like I did the DNA. I was looking at it today because I wanted to see if I had any Irish in me because Scottish came like out of the gate to number one. Wow. For me. Wow. <laughs> so I, like, I check it all the time for updates, but I'm like, I almost wish I could put this in here. Like, this is how far back we know that alcoholism goes because that's an important thing for people to see that there's like addiction that runs in their family and yes. to identify that. And it's what I saw growing up. It's how I saw people celebrate. It's how I saw people cope with stress. It's how I saw people when they were angry, happy, sad, mad, like any emotion that you could feel alcohol was there. And it was in like probably less than a 1% chance that walking out of that culture in that situation, adding on to that, I had the genetics for it, that I would be able to make it without having an addiction myself. Yeah. You know, I love the example you gave of the first time you drank, you drank the whole bottle and blacked out. That's so useful for people to listen to. And I actually used to run parent support groups for parents of teenagers. And it was very like psychoeducational and talking about how to parent during the teen years. 
And I would often say to the parents, you need to talk about alcohol use, right? Like you can't avoid it because you talk about it doesn't mean you're going to make it happen. And if there's addiction in the family line, you have to have a very important conversation, which is telling them, Johnny, if you go to the party and you find yourself drinking 10 beers and you see the rest of your friends drinking one, two, or three, that's a clue that you have a higher tolerance and you have the genes for it and you are set up to be more of that binge drinker extremist Mm -hmm. than your friends or you know have them take note like if you can hang out with a group of friends and you see your friends being able to shut off and put put the drink down and you can't that is another red flag of there's something in the family system the genes are getting turned on because of the environment and we need to talk about that so i love that you gave that example It's so, so important because I think about myself, you know, one of the biggest things that held me accountable to my goal of staying sober was thinking about, I don't want to pass this torch to somebody else, but there's only so much that's within my control. Mm -hmm. I want to do everything that's within my control to know and not giving this deliberately to somebody else. And having those types of conversations are so important. Yes, it's so true. And like, I call you a cycle breaker. It's one of my favorite terms because I feel like there's so many dysfunctional patterns and cycles that are passed down through families. Um, And it just takes one person to become that cycle breaker and shift, Mm -hmm. change the legacy for the rest of the family. Mm -hmm. And that's huge. Mm -hmm. That's so important. What's also interesting too, And it's confusing for a lot of people to learn about how alcoholism is passed down and right. There's the genetic makeup for it, but there's also Mm -hmm. the modeling for it. You know, Mm -hmm. how alcohol use is modeled in the family. And I love how you mentioned like alcohol was everywhere. It was for the celebration, but it was also for the sad time or the stressful time. It was just always present. Yeah. It's hard because like thinking even back, like while we're talking about that, I like, know in my life, especially with my dad, because again, I, well, I want to preface this with, I know that my dad did everything that he could with what he had mm-hmm. to, you know, I, th- I think our generation is so lucky. We have so many resources. We have so many podcasts, self-help books. Like it's very encouraged to work on yourself, to be a better person where in the eighties and the nineties, like that wasn't the case, especially in West Virginia. Like it was not. But my dad would always use us, my family, my mom as like an excuse, like you're making me mad. You're stressing me out. This is what's causing me to do this here. Yes, you're so right. You know, and I've shared on my podcast, my father's an alcoholic as well. And that was a common thing, right? If there is a fight, it was like, you're, well, I'm drinking because you're making me so angry. And It takes a lot for someone to learn how to cope in other ways and take accountability that no one can make you do anything and Mm -hmm. you're drinking because that's your choice in the moment and choice of how you're coping with things. But yeah, it's difficult for a family to have someone with an alcohol problem, right? Mm -hmm. And then it's difficult when people don't really acknowledge it. Was it acknowledged in your family growing up that alcohol was an issue or is it kind of just ignored? This is the way of life. Like almost like a little bit of both, if that makes sense. Like Mm -hmm. there were, there are moments, like I can really like specifically remember my dad breaking down and apologizing. And I know like, again, thinking back in his world, 
his behavior was very normalized at that time. It was a very normal behavior, but that doesn't stop your emotions from coming in and feeling that shame and guilt. Like I remember times where he would break down and he would cry and he would say, I'm so sorry. I'm never going to do this again, but he didn't have the coping skills and the tools to not do it again. He didn't have the ability. So it was a lot of broken promises, which again, until I was able to step into my own recovery, develop my own coping skills and really learn about addiction, it didn't give me the ability to forgive him. That makes sense. And also I'm guessing your father came from parents that were also drinkers. So no one really gave him an example of what it's like not to be a drinker and how to use other coping skills that he didn't, no one paved the path for him to know that. It's tough. It's really tough. So it sounds like you started drinking in college and then how long did you continue drinking for? And was it, were you a heavy drinker? So it was like, until I got to therapy and got to like really listen, because I didn't know about, I, I have a psych background, like I have a psych degree, but I didn't really understand addiction as much as I thought I did. I really like, I was like so into intervention and so into like reading about like different stories with people's people that had addiction, but you would think being surrounded by it so much with my parents, um, like un- unfortunately, like other family members as well. When I heard my therapist describe it as a progressive disease, I didn't even take that into account because there were certain family members that we would look at as the example, like, well, at least you're not drinking every day. At least you're not waking up as, as soon as you wake up, you're cracking a beer like so-and-so. And that was like the example of this is where you don't want to be. But right. in reality, throughout my 20s into my 30s, I could see where my drinking progressed. And I went from drinking just one night a week, then to two nights, then to three nights, then to four nights. And there were moments of, you know, what, what people would call like rock bottom moments where it escalated the drinking mm-hmm. and it would go to any time that I knew that I had the day off the next day, you could guarantee I was going to get blackout drunk. And sometimes even whenever I had to go to work the next day, I was still getting blackout drunk. So it progressed until I was 32 years old. My family came down to come visit me in Virginia and time with them like is mean so much, especially now that I live further away. They live like eight hours away and they came for a whole week and me and my dad blacked out every single night that they were down. And I remember just thinking like, I could see myself in him, like this person that I swore I'd never become like that. I was like, I'll never be you. I had said it to his face before. I'll never be you. I'll never do this. Like I got into fights with my mom, like said horrible things to her. And I was like, I am him. Like I am him. So that's what pushed me to go to therapy um, at 32. Thank you for sharing that. And it sounds like you guys bonded, you know, you're happy to see your family, but like you bonded over the drinking and you're both like meeting each other there. Like we're going to drink until we black out. And that's how we're spending our time together. But you needed that experience to then take a look at yourself and be like, what is happening? So 
I love that your therapist pointed out the progression of the disease, right? Like, and you guys kind of had like this boundary, like, oh, if you're waking up and drinking every day, you're the alcoholic, then you need help, but kind of didn't really um, see how that person gets there. And a lot of, you know, I work with a lot of college students and a lot of them rationalize the use because, oh, I'm young and this is normal right now and all my friends are doing it. Or even though I'm blocking out, I'm still getting up and going to class and I still have all A's. Like there's always some kind of like rationalization of the use. And a lot of it is like it could be worse. Like, oh, I'm only I only have a problem if I look this way when I'm drinking or ah. if I do that. So you you can relate to that. You can totally relate to that. So much. And I think for as a culture, as an American society, we could do better with like college, especially like I look back to, you know, whenever I was in school, it's very much normalized. So it blurs the lines for a lot of people with knowing if they have a problem or not, because everybody is drinking in excess in college. And why are we normalizing this? Like going to school, going to college is to get smarter, to get a degree, but it's so much drinking is involved with it. And there's so many students that get hurt that unfortunately lose their lives every year because of incidents that involve alcohol. And unfortunately too, like, yes, it is fun. It is so mm -hmm. much fun to be a college student and have freedom and drink Thursday, Friday, Saturday for quarter beers. I think like in my college, it was like quarter beers yeah. for the night. You know, it was so cheap <sighs> and it was a good time. And it is a good time for a lot of people, but you're exactly right. The lines are blurred. And I also think a lot of trauma happens while someone's drinking that heavy at that young age that they later have to undo and unpack when they're older. Like our brain is still developing till we're 25. So in our late twenties, we start to really process like who we used to be as, as a younger person. And there's a lot of trauma that happened as a result of the having heavy drinking and substance yeah. use that has an impact on a person's life. Do you wake up feeling like there are not enough hours in the day to get everything done? Feel a pit in your stomach when you get constructive criticism or find yourself pressured to make everyone happy all of the time? Then you're probably struggling with anxiety due to habits of people-pleasing, perfectionism, and overachievement. You don't have to live in this state of being anymore. I have taken every ounce of my knowledge and over 10 years of experience as a licensed mental health counselor to design my first online course, The Path to Peace. The Path to Peace is a self-guided program where you'll learn my five core pillars to anxiety management in just seven days. The techniques in this course are proven to help you effectively manage your worry thoughts so you can feel at ease throughout your day, understand the beliefs that drive your need to please, and so you can clarify and prioritize what you truly want. And learn how to slow down and say no more often so you have more time for yourself and what you love. You can learn more about the path to peace by clicking the link in the show notes or heading to carinocounseling.com. So you saw a therapist. Was the therapist helpful in your recovery or did you seek other support to stop drinking? What was that like to, to stop, to make the decision to stop? I love my therapist so much. Her name is Belinda and she was so vital in, in my road to recovery because 
I realized I needed someone to hold me accountable. And it's not that like, it wasn't like right away, like she was like, hey, you have alcoholism. And I was like, oh, cured. Like it was was a long process where we would unpack a lot of things. I would set like that week I was going to get sober and then I wouldn't. And that went on for a while. It went on for months and months and months. Whenever I describe it to people, it's like, I, just like my dad, only had this one tool in my toolbox, which was alcohol. I reached for it for anything when I was happy, when I was sad, when I was stressed. So going to therapy helped me develop all of these new tools and all these new skills. So I was less likely to reach for that alcohol, less and less and less until finally one week it stuck it wasn't anything like super traumatic that happened or anything it was I think just the progression of me growing and really evolving um into who I was that made me say you know what this week I'm really going to stick to it and she was so so helpful in that and helping me work through trauma and helping me really understand my own addiction and the way that it worked and the way that it was affecting my life. She was vital in that. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And it sounds like it it took time to get to that decision and it went alongside you developing other ways of spending your time. Like Mm -hmm. you were saying, like if you had a day off and you were going to drink that night. So I'm sure you started to do other things instead of drinking on the days off. Um, You Mm -hmm. found other ways to spend your time. You found other ways to cope with your emotions. And that seemed to be the ingredient for you. Yeah. I remember the first time that, because anything that I did, I was either drunk or hungover and felt like absolutely awful. And we would go to this park and like my husband and his family, they're like big runners. I cannot tell you how many races I did hungover, which was like (laughs) horrible. So so I can't even imagine doing anything like that now. Yeah. But we went to this park just to do like a run. And I remember I sat on top of this hill and I wasn't hungover. Like I felt so good. And just like breathing in fresh air, smelling like it was like fresh cut grass, listening to the kids like play in the background. It was such a moment for me that I'll like remember forever because it was like one of the first times that I just was able to be present and in the moment and enjoy these little things that I had taken for granted for so long because prior I would just be there wanting to go home like complaining that it was so hot outside. Then like I would eat a bunch of crappy food. I'd lay on the couch all day and just waste the days away. Yeah. And I, now I don't do that. (laughs) Now you don't do that. And probably wanting to crawl back into bed and like, just, it's a whole different mood. It's a whole different vibe when you're hungover like that. A whole different vibe. Probably thinking about the next time you could drink again and party again. Yeah, totally. So for you, did you have any particular choices that you were making that led you to feel like, okay, this is my rock bottom? Was it the week spent with your dad? Was it anything else? Well, I think overall, like you can look back, I had several like moments that were terrible. You know, I had gotten to a car accident where I flipped Mm. my truck and like lost my job. And that was awful. I 
you know, the, the fights with my family and saying horrible things to people and doing like absolutely mortifying things. I would never do sober. Like I'd wake up in the morning and just want to crawl in a hole and die. But I think realizing like, you know, spending that time with my dad and then realizing there was this person that I painted myself to be as, you know, like I was this runner that I worked in a corporate sales job and I, you know, what I always looked like put together, even though as the years went on, like my outward appearance started to slowly deteriorate. Like my therapist was able to pick up right away that I was drinking because she was like, you're swollen, your face is red. But I realized I was painting this picture of this person that I wasn't actually like living. (laughs) I wasn't this person. Like I was, I wanted to be this person. Like I really, really, really wanted to be her, Mm -hmm. but I was not, I was just talking the talk. I wasn't walking the walk and realizing how much I was hindering my own happiness. Like I really was limiting myself in so many ways because my weekends were totally consumed with drinking Friday through Sunday. Like that was gone. That led into me feeling like garbage Monday and Tuesday. So I really had like Wednesday, Thursdays that were good days for me out of the week. And what a waste of my time on this earth it was. That's what really pushed me. And then, like I said before, also thinking about passing this torch to somebody else. Like I couldn't imagine, you know, me and my dad are on great terms now, but I couldn't imagine feeling, having someone feel the way that I felt about my dad, about me. And it sounds like you had such anger and resentment for your dad, but then you started to have like anger and resentment towards yourself. You're like, wait a minute, like here I am. I only have two days a week that seem valuable for me. Like what's becoming? Oh yeah. And I was like the biggest hypocrite in the world. Like I would go home to West Virginia and point my finger at everybody else that lived there. Like you need to get help. You need to get help. You need to get help. And never once did I turn that mirror back around to myself. Mm. Because it was probably hard for you to imagine yourself as someone with a problem. Yeah. Because it felt normal. And it sounds like you just started to take accountability. And it was a series of low moments that led you to to that ultimate decision. And it sounds like that week with your dad was the catalyst for that big change. Yeah, it totally was. I read back to my journal during that time. And it was like the way that I described that week and how it made me feel like That's why journaling, I feel like is so important because when you can really put your feelings on paper to look back on, it's like, not only do you see your growth and you're so proud of yourself, but you also know like where you never want to be again. You know where you don't want to ever go back to. Do you still journal? I do. Mm -hmm. It's such a good habit and such a good practice for people. It really is. It's such a good good. coping mechanism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned your therapist was a a really huge support for you in your recovery and your sobriety. Who else was part of your support system at the time when you made that choice? I, at the time, because again, I knew I had tried so many times. I'd be like, this is the weekend I'm going to hold myself accountable. And I couldn't do it Mm -hmm. (laughs) on my own. 
Um, so when I was like super serious, I let my husband, my best friend and my mom know, like, this is something that I can't do on my own. And I need you to hold me accountable. If I call you and I say, I listen, I really want to drink. I need you to tell me no. And like for my husband, who he was my boyfriend at the time, it was a lot like, I don't want to say easier because we lived together, but it was also harder for him because he was used to giving into me. Like this was something that he only knew to be a part of my life. Like he met me in active addiction and like loved me through active addiction. So for him, it was like the most important. And he was such a good support system because I remember like, it was probably like two months in and I said to him, I came home from work. Corporate sales is like super stressful, by the way. (laughs) Are you still in it or no? I'm not, I'm not anymore. Um, And I came home from work and I I said to him, I really want to drink. Like I had a long week. It was on a Friday when I'm typically, that was like my typical routine was like, get off work. I'd drive to Harris Teeter that was down the street. I'd go pick up two bottles of wine and a pack of cigarettes and come home and just sit on the back porch. He was like, don't move, like sit on the couch. I'll be right back. He went and got sushi from like my favorite restaurant and then like sparkling grape juice. And we sat on the couch and we started watching this like TV show. And it became, that became my new ritual. Every Love week. it. it was, like, every Friday we would get sushi and we would sit and we would spend that time together on the couch. So that replaced me going to the grocery store and getting the wine and the cigarettes that replaced that habit that I was into. So that is a replacement behavior that I talk a lot mm-hmm. about in therapy. Like what are the replacement behaviors going to be? You kind kind of have to pre-plan and have a game plan. Yours happened organically with the support of your boyfriend. Um, mm-hmm. But I think anyone listening, thinking of like wanting to change this about themselves is what can you start? What are the other activities you can start to do? Mm-hmm. Could be simple on the couch, getting involved in a show with a friend or loved one that will occupy your time and distract you from those urges to drink. It helps. It works. It really works. Yeah. It sounds like you've come a long way. Yeah. It's you- like been now I think about, cause it's been almost five years, wow. which is so crazy, but now, you know, my recovery, my sobriety has become such a part of me and it's still like, I still get triggered at times. I still get, you know, urges, but I now can't imagine my life ever yeah. being what, where it was before where it was. Were friends and family supportive of your choice to become sober? Was there anyone that you let go of or needed to let go of because you were now living a sober life? I, everybody in my family was super supportive with my friends, there are some that like, they naturally just like faded away. It wasn't anything that I hold against them or that I think they hold against me. That's, I feel like that's one of the biggest questions that I get. Like, am I going to lose my friends Mm. when I quit drinking? And I always tell people, you can't fear that. Like as when you're an adult anyways, like you, 
the goal is to always keep evolving and you want to grow and you want to learn. And naturally you will pick up new friends. You will pick up people that are on the same wavelength, that have the same values, that have the same interests as you. And the people that didn't, that I only had like the commonality of drinking with, they just naturally, like it just naturally faded away and we became more distant. But I have like sober friends now that like I couldn't imagine my life without. Yeah, that's so nice. And I'm also thinking like if people are losing people because they're sober, they're better off without them in the long run. 100%. You need new friends, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You need new friends. Or or the connection was only there because of like this drinking ritual, this partying ritual, and maybe – now that you're not drinking or partying, the friendship changes and that's okay. You, you find other people that align yeah. with what you're doing today with your time. So how has sober, being sober changed your life, you think? What's different about your life now? I mean, I would say the biggest thing is I'm so confident in myself where before, like I had no confidence. Mm. Now I know that I'm in control of myself. There is there even, you know, I had so much uncertainty when I was drinking because I couldn't trust myself. I couldn't trust what I was going to say, do, act. I was very self-conscious, but now, you know, I took, take risks that I would never take. You know, you talk, we talked about like me kind of taking that risk and opening up and um, sharing my story. I call it shining your light and, Mm. and being like, a beacon for somebody else. And then there are so many things that I take risks on now. And I just kind of like, don't, I don't care what anybody else thinks of me because I am me. And I know that now, like, again, I'll never stop evolving. I'll never stop growing. And I would say the second biggest thing is it's given me the gift of my dad becoming sober too. Like we had this tumultuous relationship my whole life. And if you would have told me five years ago that my dad would be where we're at now, I would have literally said you were crazy. I would have said, there's absolutely no way. And now he's sober. He's been sober for a couple of years now. And he is, I'm just so proud of him because it's, it's like, I feel like for his generation, like I said before, like they didn't have the resources that we have now. And so for him to come from really a lifetime of an addiction is, I'm just so impressed and inspired by him. Such a huge Um, accomplishment. How old was he when he became sober? He was around 60 years old. Amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. How did he do it? Did he join any programs? Did he get a therapist? How was it for him? He really, I think, went, he went to therapy like I did. So he, he saw a therapist and um, I think he went to some meetings as well, some AA meetings, but he, therapy is like where he, he made the most it. change. That's yeah. amazing. You know, you were mentioning the feelings you would get after a night of drinking and it sounds like a lot of anxiety. Like, what did I do last night? I did and said things I shouldn't have. Now I'm embarrassed. And I'm guessing you probably 
then treated those feelings the next day with drinking again. Mm -hmm. When you became sober, did you start to find you were feeling things um, that you were numbing or masking with alcohol before? Um, Because a lot of like my clients, once they get sober, other things emerge, right? Like now they're like, other habits of like, they're picking their skin, they're picking their nails, they're like, they're fidgeting, they're restless, like they don't know what to do with the feeling of anxiety or sadness that's present, because it was always dealt with with alcohol or another substance. So for you, do you feel like the alcohol ever masked other emotions for you? Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, especially with dealing with, you know, childhood trauma, I had never dealt with any of that. And then you add on to I was causing myself a lot more trauma drinking. I was getting myself into horrible situations. So after I quit, I definitely, I, we were talking about picking your skin. I totally did, did those things like up until I can't tell you how important therapy is like just as a whole, because I still go back when I feel like I need like, okay, this is like an area that I, I feel a little bit out of control with. I go back to therapy and it wasn't that long ago that I was like picking again. And it's like things that you have to revisit to figure out what I at least for myself to figure out what do I need to work on here? And like, I think getting to a good place in recovery, I talked about like forgiveness with, I was able to forgive my dad. It's also forgiveness for yourself and forgiving yourself for putting yourself in dangerous situations or embarrassing situations. And, um, anything that you might have done, that you wouldn't have done sober being able to truly forgive yourself and say, it's okay. We're going to yeah. like move on from this. Yeah. Having that grace with yourself. Thank you so much for sharing all of this, Jenna. How can people find you and connect with you after listening to this? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram. So I'm your sober bestie on Insta. And then um, my website is my name, jennadolio.com. I love that. I'll make sure to link those in the show notes. And I'm just really grateful for your openness and your vulnerability. And I think what you're doing is so positive. And I feel like on the online space, there's a lot of people influencing certain things and you're influencing something amazing. And it's just, it's so nice for people to identify with you, right? And when you first come across your page, you're like, oh, this is a really pretty influencer. She probably is selling me shoes. And you're like, nope, she's not selling me shoes. She is selling me content about sobriety. And I love that. Yeah, it's, I'm telling you, I'm like, I, if you would have told me I'd be where I am now, like talking about being sober, but if you are listening right now and you are questioning, or you think a sober life wouldn't be fun, I'm telling you, I didn't believe it in the slightest. I never thought that I could live like just this fun life. You can do it. And it's amazing. Thanks for having me on. You're so (laughs) welcome, Jenna. Thank you so much. I love getting to talk to my cycle breakers. If you're listening to this podcast, you are probably a cycle breaker yourself. You're probably working on changing something inside of you or some kind of behavior you're used to that you're realizing is unhealthy and you start to unpack it and you're like, wow, I learned this from my parents or my grandparents or the way I was brought up. And it takes a lot of work to change that. So it only takes one person to shift the patterns of dysfunction that have been passed down from generation to generation in a family system. 
I mean, what a gift to give your kids your future legacy. It's, it's hard work, and Jenna is such a great example of that. So if you enjoyed this episode, you might want to listen to episode number 37, titled Unhealthy Relationships with Alcohol in Your 20s. And you may want to go back and listen to my own episode. I think it's way in the beginning of this podcast, maybe episode seven, where I talk about my personal story of being a child of an alcoholic. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget to rate or review this podcast so I can get the content out into the world and support more people on their mental health journeys. I hope you enjoyed listening to the information shared during this episode. For complimentary anxiety management tools, you can head over to my website, carinocounseling.com. Thank you so much for listening and go enjoy all the moments your day has to offer you.